you got the whole tech industry is trying to sell people solutions and the ops people like i think the classic thing is like the ops guy is like i don't need real-time mapping to tell me the fire across the road because i'm standing on the road right there's this big disconnect in the tech world between like how things actually happen with operations versus planning versus a 24-hour planning cycle um and so a lot of people propose these kind of new cool tech solutions like hey we can have real-time tracking on all your resources and we can tell you where the fire is that don't really translate to what ops needs. I think like the there's all this push for like better technical solutions, and it it the problem isn't that we don't put out enough fires, right? The problem is that we're putting out too many fires, and so the problem's getting worse. So I kind of feel like all this focus on like technical solutions to make us better at putting fires out is like totally backwards because we need more fire on the ground, and we should be putting those resources into trying to figure out how to let fires burn and how to get more fire on the ground. Hi there, and welcome to episode 14, I think, of Life with Fire podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Montai. Today, I'm going to be talking with Zeke Lunder, who is a pyrogeographer who's been working in fire in various capacities for over 20 years now. Um, And he is pretty active in the prescribed fire community. He has a great Twitter account. I follow his Twitter and I really enjoy his insights. It's becoming a bit of a trend for me to just ask people who I follow on Twitter to uh, come on the podcast and talk about fire with me. But nonetheless, I do have some more sort of structured episodes and series coming up one of which will be about wildfire impacts on various animal species and another one about land use resiliency. So those will be coming up here shortly. Um, I'm trying to do better about posting every two weeks, I promise. I think the real problem here is that I fought fire for four years and then last summer was kind of like social distance, COVID summer. So this feels like the first summer in a long time that I've been able to just kind of like go crazy and do all the summer things. So I've been uh, spending a lot of time biking. I actually just got off of a bike trip with another fellow former hotshot uh, from Baker River, and we just went and uh, biked around in the lion's head burn scar a bit and checked out kind of the fire effects in that area. The area that we biked through was pretty heavily impacted. It seemed like a good amount of high severity fire kind of ripped through there. But we had a great time. We got to pick some morels and kind of see some fire impacted areas and do a little bit of hot springing. So it was a good time. And uh, anyway, that's why I'm having a hard time uh, putting podcast episodes out every two weeks. So hopefully I'll get better. But these uh, these fun summer activities, I just can't resist. Anyways, before I got into the episode, I wanted to give a quick shout out to the Smoky Generation and its creator, Bethany Hanna, as well as supporters, uh, Mystery Ranch and Water Axe Pumps. They have done another round of their American Wildfire Experience grants, and I was lucky enough to receive one for the podcast, um, the alumni grant, since I already received one of these grants back in 2019 for a project that I did. Um, I was able to apply for and ended up receiving the alumni grant. So really stoked on that, really appreciate that, and am super stoked on what Bethany's doing and what the Smoky Generation's doing to encourage wildland firefighters to document and talk about their experiences on the line. It's really cool work and really important to communicate those experiences to um, a broader audience. So thank you so much to Bethany and Smoky Generation and everybody else that's involved with that. All right, let's get right into it. Um, Zeke is on the episode today, and we talked a little bit about communicating about fire, actually, kind of related to the grant. 
as well as some of his, you know, perceived shortcomings of uh, the technological advancements for suppressing fire and maybe how those things can be more appropriately utilized for prescribed fire initiatives. Zeke's also from Chico, California, so we talked a little bit about how deeply that area was impacted by the campfire, which, you know, Chico is is just down the road from Paradise. And that area was impacted yet again last summer during the North Complex fire when it blew up in the fall and burned a couple hundred thousand acres in just a few burn periods. So he provided some good insights about that trauma that these communities that see high fire frequency are experiencing, um, as well as the homelessness that's resulted from the campfire and how a lot of those folks have ended up in Chico. Um, So without further ado, I'll get right into it. Here's Zeke, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Um, Awesome. Well, yeah. So I am curious a little bit about your background, just kind of like I'm interested in in what brought you into fire and like what your interests are within fire. Okay. Uh, My background is um, I started off working for the Forest Service in college. I grew up up in Lassen County in Northeastern California mm-hmm. and kind of the only jobs up there were either like choker setter or timber marker or prison guard or maybe school teacher. And so when I was in college, well, actually when I was in high school, I got a job with YCC and I worked on a kind of just conservation crew, um, building fences and brushing trails. And that was super fun. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of my first real job. And so um, in college, I got a timber crew job and worked a couple of years on the Eagle Lake District. So Eastside Pine. And we had a ton of thinning and it was a time where there was um, the Quincy Library Group was getting started in Northern California and they were all about trying to do big landscape scale fuels treatment. Yeah. And so we were kind of the, the paint for that. Um, so we just marked thousands of acres of thinning and I had a boss that kind of encouraged us to think like fire, like, Hey, you, we're thinning this cause fire can't. And so we just walked around the woods and kind of thought like, well, if I was a fire, what would I, what trees would I kill? And then those trees were the ones that got, you know, selected to get cut. Oh, cool. So I, I think that it was just kind of like a cool intro to thinking that way. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was doing mapping at the same time in college. And so there's just kind of that intersection where I kind of fell into um, fire and geography together. Uh, did a little fire with the Forest Service on just on the district crew, mm-hmm. mainly just little lightning fires. But I kind of just fell into this um, fire planning role. When I got back to school, I graduated and there was work doing watershed planning around where I live now in Chico. Mm-hmm. And they said, hey, you work for the Forest Service, come work on these projects. And um, so I ended up working for contractors. I've been working for contractors pretty much my whole career after a couple of years of the Forest Service, um, doing GIS, doing mapping on fires. And I kind of just got in right when that industry was starting. You know, like late 90s, they were just starting to bring computers out to fire camp and plotters. And so I worked for kind of one of the first contractors that was providing GIS on fires. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was like 1999. And so kind of just ever since that, it's, I've been kind of at this intersection of the, the technology and the planning. 
Oh, cool. Okay. So you're like, you're going out to fires. You're not working much in like a sort of a research capacity. Cause I hear, I see pyrogeographer and I imagine like a bit of an academic sort of intersection there at some, at some point. Yeah. I, I, I never got a master's or anything. I just kind of fell into it through the work. Cool. Um, I guess that's kind of been maybe one of the things I've enjoyed about my career is that Absolutely. it really hasn't been very academic. We, we've been pretty applied. That's cool. And so you're working at fire camps now, presumably, like, do you go out to camps and work for planning and work in the GIS like unit, basically? I kind of done with that. Um, oh. I did that for, I don't know, 15 or 16 years. And then kind of got super burnout on going to fire camps. And um, it's the fire GIS stuff is, it's kind of fun at first. It's like, it's social and see your friends you kind of see the same people every time you go to a fire it's just kind of like any fire mm -hmm. work you know it's that small world uh-huh but the deadlines are kind of crazy you know like everyone sees the big bam briefing map up in the morning and there it's like there's a lot of um stress in getting that big map printed and like you know anyone who's worked with a normal printer you have all the same problems trying to print except that you're in like you know yellow pine idaho and the plotter breaks at three in the morning and you have to fix it with like, you know, paper clips and duct tape or something. You know, if you were on a fire in the nineties before you had GIS, like there was someone who came out with like Sharpies and, you know, there's this whole position like the display processor where it was like the person who took the map from ops that the ops had drawn and they just like drew like 10 new copies of it onto Topo and that was your map, right? <laughs> Here we are, we got like, you know, $200,000 GIS unit with a $20,000 printer. And we're still just printing like red and black lines on a topo map. And it's like, well, where's the big advance here? You know? <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, can we, um, can we talk a bit more about the progression of mapping, I guess, of fire mapping? Like, I think that might be an interesting, that might be interesting to my listeners, just learning more about how fires are mapped and like maybe the the new technologies. I know there's like like drones are a pretty useful technology at this point. I don't know if you have any more insights on that. It's all coming along. It seems like things have been super <clears throat> slow. You know, my career, like was kind of the story of like, hey, I got this idea. How about we try this? And the people saying, no, just give me a topo with colored lines on it. Mm -hmm. And um, so yeah, there's people are doing some some cool stuff like um, in Southern California. Uh, my buddy AJ is working a lot with this new, I think it's called FURS, um, where they've got planes and um, this kind of battlefield mapping software. And stuff, it sounds like it's gonna be useful. I think, you know, part of the problem is like, you got the whole tech industry is trying to sell people solutions and the ops people, like, I think the classic thing is like, the ops guy is like, I don't need real-time mapping to tell me the fire across the road because I'm standing on the road, right? And then there's this expectation somehow that like the incident commander is like this grand chess master back at fire camp and they're like controlling their forces. And there's this big disconnect in the tech world between like how things actually happen with operations versus planning versus a 24 hour planning cycle. Um, and so a lot of people propose these kind of new cool tech solutions like, hey, we can have real time tracking on all your resources and we can tell you where the fire is that don't really translate to what ops needs. Because a lot of times ops they know where the fire is because they're standing right there. And no one's wanted to rely on internet or, you know, I think what we've all learned is like the more complex the system, the easier it is to break it. 
And so I'm kind of glad in a lot of ways that the tech has moved slower, that ops has been kind of crusty about it because it's like this stuff doesn't, a lot of it, if you're like relying on the internet and you're in happy camp, you know, and you've got like 400 firefighters off shift, like watching videos in their tents, like even if you had good broadband when you got there, it doesn't work, you know? And so there's this real practical kind of things about where we work. And I think like the, there's all this push for like better technical solutions and it, it ignores the problem that like, the problem isn't that we don't put out enough fires, right? The problem is that we're putting out too many fires. And so the problem's getting worse. So I kind of feel like all this focus on like technical solutions to make us better at putting fires out is like totally backwards because we need more fire on the ground. And we should be putting those resources into trying to figure out how to let fires burn and how to get more fire on the ground. That's a fascinating insight. I hadn't considered that. What do you think that would look like? What kind of technology have you have you thought of anything that might actually like kind of flip that uh, flip that on its head and make it a little easier to do to put more fire on the ground? I don't know. What does that technology look like to you? I don't think there's a technical solution for that, right? Like, yeah, well, I think all the technology that's being developed for suppression, it, it all can be used to make us better at prescribed fire mm -hmm. and make us better at managed fire. It is frustrating to me that like the big tech companies are one, they're not really pushing tech from a land management or kind of holistic perspective. They're pushing it from a suppression kind of militaristic. Like how can we adapt these military solutions to get better at putting out the fires? That's interesting. And kind of what I was thinking about earlier was just the, the nature of fire is pretty cool or fire suppression anyway, is, is kind of interesting in that it hasn't really changed through time. Like you can't really technologically uh, advance yourself into more into better fire suppression. Like the, the foundation of fire suppression, we kind of like nailed it already, <laughs> you know, Good. like uh, I just, it's, it's crazy how little it's changed ultimately, you know, yeah. you still like, no matter what, if you, even if you have, even it, you know, you get out on a fire that doesn't have cell service and it all is basically right back to like the basic tenets of digging line. And yeah, we have radios. That's pretty cool. But the, the, the foundations of it is like, it's, it's pretty crazy how little it's changed really in like a hundred years. Yeah. And I think what's interesting to me too, is that like when we have these big fire busts in California where there's a thousand new starts and everything's smoked in, like all these advantages that we had from air, observation or um, tankers or anything, they all kind of go out the window. Like we're smoked in, you can't get helicopters, you can't get uh, air attack. And so we're back in kind of the dark ages. But one thing I thought about the other day was like, when I started my career, like we didn't have VLATs. We didn't have like real-time asset tracking. And even with all this, we didn't have 747s that dropped, you know, 10,000 gallons of retardant. But even with all that, the fires have gotten so much worse in my career. It's just like, well, we've kind of escalated the the war on it to like, we've got the biggest planes you can get dropping the most mud that they can carry and the fires are still not behaving themselves. So it kind of tells me like, well, hey, you know, maybe we can't just fight our way out of this. How do you imagine prescribed fire benefiting from some of this technology in a different way, I guess? I think the storytelling side probably, you know, mm -hmm. like the social media and giving people more um, experience kind of visually with good fire. I feel like um, like we've already got great technology for mapping and planning and fire behavior and everything. 
And I think the obstacles to mortgage power, they're not technical. You know, it's not like we um, don't have good enough models or something to know where we can light and when we can light it. It's more that the social license, you know, um, people's experience with fire, so much of it's through this um, curated corporate media that, you know, like it's frustrating. You've probably seen it too. Like you're on a fire and it's out, right? And it's been out for two days and the media is still showing like clips from like two days prior when it was actually written. Mm-hmm. We're like, fire is still only 50% contained and you're there. It's like, it's out, right? You can barely yeah. find a smoke. We're mopping up. The only reason it's that little, there's that little containment is because they're waiting for us to mop up 200 feet in. <laughs> right, right. Or because the team wants to stay through the weekend, right? Uh-huh. Um, and so I think just getting people more a taste of good fire, you know, and telling the stories and kind of just building this narrative on social media around good fire, like maybe that's the best technical thing we can do because we don't, I don't feel like we need the better tech on the, um, I mean, like you said with firefighting, prescribed fire is still pretty basic. You go out on the right day and you uh, put a bunch of fire on the ground and like that's, I mean, there's a whole thing we need to keep alive with the culture and the know-how for that, but that's not really a technical problem. That's kind of more um, administrative or cultural problem. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm at a point in my career where I, like I was a techie for 20 years, but I've never really believed that like we were going to solve the fire problem with our GIS or anything, like because we're just kind of there to um, as part of the suppression apparatus. Mm-hmm. So. I guess that I'm less interested in tech now. I mean, I, I still use GIS for um, for planning, and you know, a lot of the stuff that I share online is kind of um, I've kind of been lucky in that um, I started a company to do this work, and then it, it got um, I sold it to Firestorm here in um, Northern California, mm-hmm. and Firestorm's been really um, supportive of me um, doing a lot of social media during fire season to try to. Um, kind of fire education posts and talking about good fire and talking about um, kind of a, a different narrative. And I think, I guess when I think back in my career, um, there's been a lot of drawbacks of being a contractor as far as um, not like having people in general kind of operations world. Um, like if you haven't spent five, 10 years on a hotshot crew, no one thinks that you know anything about how fire works. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a struggle there, you know, maybe identity struggle being contractor but like by far the biggest benefit of being contractors I have no PIO you know and I can say whatever I want (laughs) and people are thirsty for that you know like totally I'm thirsty for that like as a PIO I'm like I want to be able to say whatever I want (laughs) I know and it's so frustrating to like every fire the media is getting they're fed the same story we're going to talk about containment we're going to talk about civilian casualties whatever like the stuff that sells uh, newspapers or um, clicks mm-hmm. and it's like man there's so much more to talk about there's the narrative it's like let's talk about why this fire's out but we're calling it 50 percent contained or yeah. let's talk about why do we even put this fire out mm-hmm. and uh, so I, I've been enjoying that kind of role of being the, um, the non-PIO. Hey y'all sorry to interrupt but just wanted to take a quick break to ask you guys to support our Patreon if you're able to or if you feel like supporting us. 
All Patreon donations will go towards travel and potentially starting to do some more in-person interviews here this summer, uh, as well as being able to pursue some more breaking news type episodes where we speak to experts who can kind of demystify something that's happening in the news related to wildfire. Uh, That'll be particularly pertinent as the fire season starts kicking off here. Well, it already has started kicking off really, but um, when it really starts kicking off in July and August. We appreciate any and all support you guys are able to give us, and all Patreon supporters will also receive some Mystery Ranch swag. Mystery Ranch is a sponsor for the podcast, and they've provided us with some patches and t-shirts and a few other small things that we are giving out to our patrons. So if you'd like to donate, you can find the link to our Patreon in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance, and now we'll go back to Zeke. Yeah. And how did you get into, how long have you been doing the PIO stuff? Uh, I did it, I was uh, injured on a fire when I was a hotshot like three summers ago and um, they let me stay at camp. Like they could have sent me home, but they let me stay at camp and do PIO work instead, which was sweet. Um, throughout my back, rolling a big log, <laughs> so dumb. Uh, and so I was, I spent like six days doing that on a little type two incident in Oregon. And then um, and then last summer I got, uh, hosted as an AD through the North Cascades and I only went on one or I went on two fires last year in Northern California, um, the Lo- Loyalton fire and the North complex. And, um, both were really good experiences. The North complex was interesting. Cause I showed up when it was like ripping and nobody had any information. And so it was like really running and gunning like type one PIO stuff. Um, but then by the end of the time I was there, you know, I had settled down. It was like pretty chill, um, kind of doing the same thing day in and day out, nothing crazy changing. And then when did the, you get there? the day that I left, I got there. I don't know, but all I know is that the day that I left was the day that it blew up. And I mean, I was like literally walking out the door and I look over and there's just this massive plume and everyone's going nuts. Like the PIO shop was like, oh my gosh, what's happening? <laughs> and every, we've got media calling and literally like had spent a week and a half, not really, you know, just kind of doing the same thing day in and day out. And then all of a sudden the day that I left, it was just, it blew up and it got really hairy. And I was, it was like 6 PM. And I was like, I, I like, they were forcing me out the door because I'd been there for so long. They were like, you need to leave. I know you want to stay, but you need to leave. <laughs> yeah. um, so that was kind of a wild experience and, and very weird to leave a PIO shop in the midst of something like that very yeah, strange like super crazy historic blow up well there's so much about that each one of these fires you know there's like you could spend a whole lifetime talking about um how we got here mm-hmm. uh, what it means for where we're going mm-hmm. and i feel like the um i've been enjoying that part of the the storytelling you know we did a lot of messaging around that fire mm-hmm. um around why it blew up and you know, there's there's so much narrative there with people like, oh, the Forest Service just ignored this thing, and like, um, it's the Forest Service's fault that we burned up this, you know, hundred thousand acres that blasted off that day, and yeah, and that complexity of like resource drawdown, like, hey, we didn't have any resources because there were a thousand other fires. It's like, yeah, it all ends up sounding like excuse making, you know? Yeah, like I feel like there's all this the grassroots firefighter stuff. Um, everyone's pushing rightfully so on, you know, getting paid better and getting better mental health and just basically treating firefighters like humans. Mm-hmm. And then um, kind of as an activist, I want to see us go farther. And I feel like we're at this point where 
like when I started my career, we had fire use teams and we had a culture of managing backcountry fires and we had momentum towards doing more of that. And that I've just seen that evaporate. Like, I feel like we're so much worse off than we were 20 years ago with managed fire, like region five, like there's some great stuff getting done by people at the local level, as far as, you know, it, picking some indirect tactics and getting good fire on the ground. Mm-hmm. But there's zero support from above to, to do that. Or And there's like, it seems like really little interest in actually having like a fire use program in California. I'm so sick of waiting for Randy Moore or Bill Sack or any of these people above to change anything. Like, I just assume it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I feel like when I'm thinking about like this new kind of um, grassroots firefighters, like, well, the hotshots, you know, like all my mentors were hotshot soups at some time or another. And I came up with kind of um, a lot of their um, perspective. And it's like, well, what if just, what if you were on a fire and every crew in your division turned down the assignment, not because it was dangerous, but because it was stupid. Mm-hmm. You know, like, because, hey, this is a good fire. And we're, no, we're not going to go in and put that out. Like, we'll, let's pick it up at the road or let's turn this into a 5,000 acre burn because um, it's meeting objectives. What if everyone just, like, what are they going to do? Like, no one else is going to, like, yeah. If you can't get the hotshots to do it, who's going to do it? You know, like, no, we're not going to put up this fire in this canyon because it's, it's a bad idea. And it's like, well, why not? Why, why hasn't the, how, why haven't we pushed things from the bottom up? Like, it's, I think it's a big flaw in our culture that, like obviously our top leadership has failed us for a hundred years in dealing with fire correctly. We're the people that are out there and see it every day. It's like how how heartbreaking it is uh, is it to be like come straight off a of prescribed fire in April or May and get sent to put out a fire that's easy to put out, right? Because it's a good fire, mm-hmm. and then like to be back there in August getting your ass chased out of there because it's stupid time to be there yeah right and I feel like a huge part of maybe of our mental health crisis and our suicide and everything is that we know that we're doing the wrong thing and people are treating us as heroes but like yes it's so frustrating to be part of that you know and and have to be treated like so you go out and you do the wrong thing you're like you put out a good fire all day long and then people are like thank you firefighters and you're like if you only knew like we just did like we didn't do any favors landowner by putting out this fire because it was a good fire that needed to happen we could have let it burn for months mm-hmm. and it's like well what's it going to take for um you know, will that ever happen will we ever have um shot crews that are just turning down assignments because it's yeah. stupid you know and feeling like they have the agency to do so and also having the support of other shot crews on the di- on that division because inevitably they're going to be like well if you're not going to do it then this other crew will is right here. They'll probably do it. And then if that yeah. soup says sure, then that makes you look bad. And then that's like a weird culture thing too. Yeah, <laughs> but it's so complicated. You know, like what you're talking about earlier with the bear fire or the North complex is like, yeah, it's great to let a fire burn in June when you're getting resource benefits. But yeah, September's going to come and you're going to have winds. And maybe you know, none of us want to start the next bear fire or campfire. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of impossible. But there's places that we can get it done, you know, in the high country and or or we just have to stop pretending that we have any control over it at all. But mm-hmm. this whole um, keeping on putting out all the good fires when they're teeny, when you can just put them out with your foot, mm-hmm. you know, 
I just feel well, like when I hear it like early in the season that like, you know, the crew had to take a boat in there and they got there five hours later and the fire was still like 40 acres. You're like, well, it must not like probably doing some good on the ground. Well, I was talking about this yesterday, actually, because I, I find it funny that when everyone's available and bored out of their minds in June, that's when, you know, you're getting these IAs and you're putting them out when they're a quarter acre. And that's when it's best to just let those things burn, even though you're bored out of your mind, just like maybe go out there and watch it, maybe dig some line or maybe do some, some indirect line for it to burn up to, you know, but just to go out and like, I've done a thousand times, not a thousand, I've, like I've done dozens of times, just going out and putting out these little lightning strike fires, these little quarter acre piddly fires in June when it's still pretty green, you know, like, yeah, we're bored and we, sh we want to work, but like, is that really the work we should be doing? Right. Um, and then by the time like October or November comes around, like no one wants to go burning. Like you want to yeah. like, go see your friends. You want to like mm -hmm. just go crawl under a rock somewhere, <laughs> burn your annual leave. Go sleep for three weeks. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to see how, like, it's hard to see how we're going to get ahead of it to me. Like, um, like we can talk about all the good fire we want and all the prescribed fire we want. And like, it just feels immovable, but I'd like to see more of us pushing from the bottom up because like, obviously the top is failing us. Mm -hmm. Like people aren't telling the right stories. Mm -hmm. And I think the story that we have to tell is just that like, Hey, look, like if you live in 20 foot tall Manzanita full of pine needles, like your place is going to burn down. We can't save it. And prescribed fire is not going to get us out of that pickle. Like in Butte County, we can, get some great stuff done with prescribed fire for, you know, black oak restoration and a lot of other things, but it's not gonna um, stop the campfire. I feel like, you know, when you go to, the, we've got these roller coasters of like, you get ramped up, you work all summer, then it's fall. And then you like, you break, your crew breaks up and you're depressed. And, mm -hmm. and like, I go out burning in February, March, and I kind of get that shot again and I'm back in fire season. And then like, I come home and it's like time to like, clean up the kids mess you know and it's like it's one of the problems with prescribed fire is that it, it keeps giving you those little jolts of fire season mm -hmm. and it's just it's really hard to integrate that with everyday life even and prescribed fire you think for me like being out and being like part of an operational team and getting something done that's you know just working in that kind of intense crew environment mm -hmm. it's it's it gets you it gets that jolt of the endorphins going and that kind of um, the part that we all love about fire and then um, then it just it's evaporated again then you're like dropping the kids off at school and kind of bored and looking for that same shot no doubt and you do that through your company through your contract work lately right? i've been burning through the um there's a prescribed fire association that's just getting started in butte county oh nice i've just been volunteering with them Cool. Um, I got to go out and burn in Nebraska in March with um, the treks out there. Mm -hmm. I went out as planning section chief. Cool. Um, been doing the treks since um, 2013. Uh, started off doing the Klamath River treks and the NorCal treks. And we kind of were just there to kind of help run their planning section. Mm -hmm. But it's been nice because it's been a way for us to get a lot of our techies some torch time. And so oh, nice. Give them a taste of like, you know, hey, put them on, you know, take them up for two weeks and let them burn every day. And like 
actually show them like, hey, this is actually what's happening when you're yeah. sitting at fire camp in a trailer, you know, all day. At least I have a little better idea of, you know, how operations actually work. Well, this is a really random uh, side note, but I, you said you were living in Chico or that you're from Chico. And I'm wondering if, if I feel like I've seen a lot of news recently about a lot of the displaced residents of Paradise ending up in Chico, whether they're homeless or needing affordable housing. And I'm curious if you can speak to that at all. Yeah, it's gnarly. It's really gnarly here. Um, we've got this kind of mass trauma, you know, the campfire affected everyone. You know, I was in South Carolina when the campfire took off on the tracks and had to fly home. My, my wife and kids evacuated. And we got back the next day and flew into SAC and it was just, you know, this charcoal black. The whole valley was full of that moon dust black. And so many people that I know just like barely got out with their lives or, you know, my, my coworker lost his house and pets and guy who's managing my company um he couldn't go back to his house for like six weeks because it was smoke damaged and um like 30 firestorm employees lost their homes oh my gosh country. and so everyone's affected one way or another um you know we ran a crew through the winter doing erosion control and just watched all this black kind of toxic water pour off of these burnt mobile home parks Mm-hmm. And so one way or another, everyone here is traumatized by it. And then we had the bear fire last year and that burned another 1500 homes. So yeah, well, there's like 25,000 structures burned in paradise. And Chico, um, Chico gained like 25,000 residents overnight. So like our general plan for Chico was to have that many residents by 2030. And basically we had like a decade's worth of growth in a day. And so we had, you know, ever since then we, we had you know, crazy traffic and the housing was already, it's California. So the housing was already crazy. And a lot of people lived in paradise because it was just pretty affordable, but there was a ton of poor people there. I mean, Butte County in general, is, is a ton of poverty mm-hmm. and paradise got built in the fifties kind of as retirement. Well, as it really built up in the fifties and sixties as kind of retirement communities. Mm-hmm. And so generationally, there's a lot of poor people who like maybe they inherited their grandma's mobile home or um, their parents had a cabin or something that so there were a ton of people who didn't have insurance and there's a ton of people who were just multi-generational poor and there were already there homeless people in paradise mm-hmm. anyway and there was a lot of meth and it's just this kind of um it's a unique it's unique in some ways and in other ways it's not like the foothills in california are full of poverty and pot growing and meth and cash economy. Mm-hmm. And so as we're burning the foothills, as we burn up, you know, in the bear fire or any of these fires that burn the brush, you're kind of burning people out of the brush. So they're traumatized. Maybe like this is the second time it's happened. You know, I, have a, yep. I had a buddy who, um, Concow burned in 2008 and a guy I know built like, he was a real, um, he was married to a local girl up there and he, built probably 15 houses. He's a carpenter and the campfire burned all of them. So those people have lost their homes twice in less than 10 years. Mm-hmm. And um, he committed suicide, the carpenter. Oh my gosh. You know? And so everyone's got that, that going on one way or another. Absolutely. 
Well, when I was on, when I was on the North complex, sorry to interrupt, I had a woman call the hotline for the fire and she was like, I live in, um, I think she was living in Quincy and Quincy was under, uh, evacuation warnings for the first week or so of that fire. And, um, the, the fire kind of burned right up to more or less up to the sort of city limits of, of Quincy. And she called and she was like, I lost my home in paradise. I've rebuilt in Quincy what's happening? Um, do I need to leave? And it was really, it, she, that was the essence of the conversation, but there was a lot more to it than that. And she was very upset and it was really hard to get, it was, it was hard to hear that, like to have that amount of trauma two years, three years in a row right there. Um, and to have to tell this woman, you know, thankfully at that time when she did call, it was just heavy smoke in town from like a little wind event that we had, but the, the fire itself wasn't pushing too much. So I was able to tell her that things were things were okay. She just still, I can't even imagine. Horrible. Yeah, so there's a ton of homeless people, um, both from the campfire and both and from the fire last year. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of this fatigue in Chico. People were already kind of um, disgruntled with the homelessness in Chico before the campfire. And then with the COVID, um, the city council decided not to evict people who are camping in our park, in Bidwell Park. And Bidwell Park is this beautiful, kind of everyone loves Bidwell Park. And it, um, so the city council decided not to kick people out. So then there was just like kind of tent city right in the park and people got totally sick of that. And so they voted out the council. And now we got a council that um, is, has cleared out the parks. Um, and now they've, they've gotten shut down by courts because they can't, um, you know, it's not legal to kick people out of a place if there's nowhere for them to go. But I feel like, um, you know, it's climate change. um, It's just, it's just getting started. Mm -hmm. You know, there's going to be more and more climate refugees, but they really are climate refugees. And for the first two decades of my career, I didn't really talk much about climate change because I didn't feel like I needed to. I felt like we could talk about fire. Like, I still feel like we've got problems with fire weather without climate change, but climate change is really pushing these issues. And I think calling these people climate refugees is a, it's useful. I don't feel like, uh, you know, cap and trade and reducing CO2 emissions is like, we can't wait for that to like, think it's gonna solve our fire problem. Cause we got a fire problem, whether or not there's climate change. But I think we all know it's not helping. Mm-hmm. It's not helping anything for us to have hotter, longer seasons. Absolutely. There was a good article about the Chico homeless. That was uh, where I saw it. Yep. Yeah, that just came out. Um, Naomi Klein. I thought that was, was it the Guardian. It was the Guardian, right? Is that what you said? I think it was the Intercept. The Intercept. Uh, Naomi yeah. Klein. Yeah, it was good. She did a good job. She talked to a lot of people, and like, I thought it was a really good article. Yeah. Yeah, I saw the headline for that yet, and I haven't read it yet. But um, that was kind of what made me bring it up was was that I'd I'd seen that, you know, just somewhere on Twitter and. Um, I hadn't, I hadn't heard about that. makes sense though. And a lot of people are going to start getting more, or a lot more people are going to be displaced, um, by these things in the next 10, 15 years. I'm, I'm sure. And I hate that that's going to become a regular problem. Yeah. So as a PIO, what, what are some things that you think that you can kind of, um, introduce into the conversation? Like what kind of leeway do you have to, um, steer the conversation when you're talking to the media? 
I haven't done a lot of media interviews. I'm just a little PIOF trainee. So that's like lowest, lowest PIO uh, level that you can get. And I'm hoping to move up to a full PIOF soon. Um, so it doesn't give me a lot of agency to really like, uh, to really take the conversation into my own hands. I don't feel like, but I think there are certainly ways to mention things because I think it's important to talk about those topics. And I think it's becoming more and more sort of agency accepted to be discussing, um, I mean, to talk about climate change kind of as a driving force in all of this and, uh, in, in all the other topics that kind of feel a little bit taboo. I think mentioning those things in a really maybe sensitive way, because they're, I think, you know, I spoke to somebody about this yesterday about like the re-traumatizing factor, like not being overly dramatic with the way that you talk about things just for the, for the sake of not re-traumatizing people who've been through yeah. a lot of bullshit already. And especially when you're on active fires that are actively burning people's houses down, yeah. um, you know, just making sure that you're being really sensitive and not bringing things into the conversation that maybe aren't appropriate at the time. But um, I think there's certainly something to be said for like the yeah. post-fire PIO work. Like, I feel like that's something that doesn't really get discussed enough is like, yeah, the recovery part of the, of the fire, you know, world. But then there's also like the communicate, communicating that recovery. Yeah. And it's like, you leave a fire as a PIO and you don't think about it again until, well, is on the North complex. I thought about it a lot because the, it was blowing up and all over the news, but, but, you know, oftentimes I feel like you leave a fire and you don't, you're just like, it's out of your mind. Um, but it'd be cool though, if they, if they really kept those, those, those strong progressive PIO teams around into that recovery process, just to communicate, you know, what the positive benefits might've been and, and what that recovery yeah. is looking like and, um, and really how like it could have been avoided. I'd really like to see us talk more about severity. You know, like we, like we have these kind of triggers for national media attention. Like we burned a million acres in a single fire or we burned 4 million acres and they're like, Tragic milestone in California, yeah. four million acres burned this year. Acres burned don't mean anything. Why, <laughs> and it's like, well, why isn't that a that's a great opportunity to talk about how like, well, three million acres of that was really good fire. And we just treated three million acres of California that wasn't gonna get it mm -hmm. with good fire. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, especially like the Mendocino complex, like everyone's like, Oh, I burned a million acres. Oh my god, million acres, biggest fire ever, million acres. And it's like, no, we just treated like eight hundred thousand acres of the Mendocino with yep low to moderate fire yep. and there was no way that that was ever going to get done any other way right exactly and no one no one's kind of coming back to that and exactly so when you talk about like what are the technical solutions for kind of better outcomes with fire it's like let's tell that story let's say like hey there's let's just admit that like we're not going to get it done with hand crews with cutting we're not going to cut five hundred thousand acres of brush we're not going to get anywhere near that burning done ever on the Mendocino. Like if you had a really aggressive burn program on the Mendocino, it would take you, it would still take you 20 years to burn half a million acres. Mm -hmm. And so why is it a bad thing that we burned a million acres? We burned the whole forest. And it's like, and a lot of it was good fire. And yeah. we've got the tools to tell that story, you know? Right. Um, you know, I think that's like the future of forest management is gonna be managing wildfires for prescriptive purposes. Right. I mean, like they've already been doing that, but I just feel like it's like really under the radar right now. People don't like to hear about that. People don't like the agency doesn't want the public to know that we're doing these big box burns or that we're like going indirect and letting the fire burn an extra couple hundred acres or a couple thousand acres just because we can. Um, and even when you're on those fires and you're actively working towards a big box burn, um, it's like super secret. It's like, it's like, 
we don't talk about this or I don't know. That's kind of like the vibe I got was that it was, uh, it was kind of like frowned upon for that to be right. out in the open <laughs> that yeah, we were you, burning for this purpose. You're, you're getting acres done in a NEPA free environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm not hopeful that, um, we'll be doing that as a matter of policy, mm -hmm. uh, just cause I, I just don't see our leadership, like making it happen, but I am hopeful just what I, I have seen in my career is that it doesn't matter what the policy is, is when yes. you've got 2000 fire starts, like you're not going to put out the fire in the middle of the yellow boy wilderness and it's mm -hmm. going to burn all summer. And the woods are kind of taking care of themselves. Uh, and I, I have, that brings me some hope in that, yeah, we're going to keep having these big fires, but even like the Mendocino complex, a lot of what burned at low severity is stuff that burned at low to moderate severity in 2008. And so when you look at the whole landscape of the Klamath and the Mendocino and, um, you know, Shasta Tea, like we, we do have this kind of mosaic of recent fires and that's really what controls how the fires behave now. I think that's kind of one of the fun things about the GIS work and kind of working at that landscape scale. It's just kind of spending a lot of time just kind of geeking out on these these big picture maps and trying to think of it at that at that scale. And I'm comforted at that scale. You know, it's heartbreaking when we burn up, you know, like the whole Feather Falls district of the, um, you know, local timber, private timberland company their whole district burned in that big run on the, the North complex. Mm -hmm. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for those foresters that spent their whole career, like growing trees on that land. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like we've got this story that with the, how we manage our forest, that goes back to the gold rush and we've made so many mistakes and we've kind of um, got this long, um, this long payback for that. You know, we're, we're still paying for mistakes that people made managing for us 100 years ago. So it's hard, it's hard to see that happen. It's hard to see these huge patches of high severity in what used to be really beautiful, productive forests. Mm -hmm. And so I'm depressed that, it, that the only time we get away with managing fire is because it's just not possible not to. You know, that the Forest Service, the only time they're going to let a fire burn, you know, on the last national forest is because they just absolutely can't get the crews and resources to put it up. But what we've seen oftentimes is that we get really good outcomes from that. You know, I wrote a fire plan for Deer Creek in the area above Chico in 1999. And there's this big roadless area up there. And we were like, well, could we burn it? You know, it has never been logged. Um, had It was overstocked. It had a lot of dead and down. And so it's like, well, what are our options? We can't log it because it's roadless and we'll get sued. We can't really thin it because it's steep and there's no access. We can't really do prescribed burning there because all the smoke's going to go up into Lake Almanor and people aren't going to like it. So in 2008, we had lightning fires there and they burned the whole area that we'd been talking about. Mm -hmm. And it was like 80% low to moderate severity. Like we couldn't have burned it better under prescription, you know? Mm -hmm. So to me, that's a, that's a great outcome. And that's like, it's kind of what we're stuck with. So it's like, well, let's plan around that. You know, so we're writing a fire plan for that area now um, for a watershed group up there. And it's like, well, let's just plan it. Let's just assume that's going to happen in these big roadless areas. Let's assume that there will be resource drawdown. We'll have lightning storms. We're going to have fires there. Forest Service is never going to manage wildfire in this area um, unless they have to, mm -hmm. right, politically. 
So let's just assume that and let's go ahead and do a lot of treatment around the edges of these areas. So when those fires do burn, then they don't end up coming out and burning a town down. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where I'm hopeful is that, um, hey, we just got to acknowledge reality. We can't put out all the fires. Got to acknowledge reality that the Forest Service is unlikely to have a fire use program in California. So how can we as planners kind of just work around these assumptions of the politics and um, the constraints and try to come up with solutions that aren't um, just imagination, right? Because I can want the Forest Service to have a prescribed or to have a managed fire program in California and just know that like, well, it hasn't happened for, we've known it'd be a good idea for 50 years and it hasn't happened. Why would I expect it to change in my lifetime? All right, folks, that's what we've got today. I want to thank Zeke for coming on the show and sharing some of his perspectives. And as always, I'd love to ask you guys to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and maybe share this episode with somebody that you think might be interested in it. Or if you feel like supporting us financially, check out our Patreon, which is linked in the show notes. That's all I've got for you today. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next one.